0: Welcome, everyone, to episode 57 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and welcome to the first episode of 2023. This is going to be a great year for the podcast. I'm still uploading all of my older episodes to YouTube, and the channel is really starting to grow. So make sure that you go and subscribe on YouTube if you haven't already. But let's just jump right into today's episode. Everyone sit back. Make sure to lock your doors and windows and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Our first story is a little on the shorter side today due to the complete lack of information online about it. A listener named McAllen messaged me about covering this in an episode. I do apologize if I mispronounce your name. To help spread the word and hopefully get some help in solving this cold case. According to the police, the case is cold, but it is still open. Anything to help spread the word, and maybe someone listening will know more details or share it with someone that might know something. On March 22, 1979, the body of 12-year-old Judith Zagara was found in a wooded area of Facet Street in Toledo, Ohio. The police said that her body was found on an embankment at the foot of the Conrail Bridge, by a Conrail engineer who radioed the police as soon as he found her. The coroner ruled her death a homicide by strangulation, and that she was killed only two to four hours before she was found. The police did have a report of a man seen running up the embankment early that morning, but no one has officially been named a suspect. There were many people questioned during this time. But nothing solid came from it. There has also been some DNA work done, but there's no information that the police can share publicly. In the early 80s, two other girls were abducted, and the families of those girls suspect that the same man is responsible, but sadly there's no evidence to prove it. The police have recently confirmed that steps have been taken over the last five years to continue to investigate this case. There are people close to the family that believe that the Cook Brothers are responsible for this murder. But the police questioned them at the time, but don't suspect that they were involved. And that leads me into my second story of today, The Cook Brothers. Anthony Cook, born March 9, 1949 and Nathaniel Cook, born October 25, 1958 are American serial killer brothers who committed a series of at least 9 rapes and murders of mostly couples in Toledo, Ohio between 1973 and 1981. Their guilt was established in the late 90s thanks to DNA profiling after which both brothers were convicted and sentenced to long terms of imprisonment. Their killings began in May 1980 when the brothers attacked 24-year-old Thomas Gordon and his 18-year-old girlfriend in Northern Toledo. They threatened the couple with guns, seized control of their car, and held them hostage. The Cooks drove the couple to the woodlands in Lucas County where they shot Gordon. The brothers then raped the woman, after which they stabbed her and they fled the scene. The girl survived, but Gordon died. On January 3rd, 1981, Anthony and Nathaniel picked up a 19-year-old hitchhiker and Michigan native named Connie Sue Thompson. They drove Connie out to Lucas County, where they raped and subsequently killed her. The Cooks then threw her body off a bridge into a stream where it was discovered on January 17th. In February of 1981, Anthony lured 12-year-old Don René Bax into his car. Nathaniel soon joined his brother. The two men took Bax to an abandoned theater where they raped and tortured the young girl for the next several hours. The brothers ultimately killed her crushing her skull by hitting her several times on the head with a brick. On March 27th, Anthony attacked Scott Moulton and Denise Sidokowski, both 21, near a supermarket located in the city center. He took them both outside the city suburb of Oregon, Ohio, where he shot both after raping the woman. In this instance, he acted without help from his younger brother. On August 21st, 1981, Anthony, again acting alone, attacked Daryl Cole and Stacy Lynn Balanek, both 21. After raping Stacy, Cook used a baseball bat that he had found in her car to beat Cole, inflicting fatal brain injuries. He then killed Stacy in the same manner. Anthony hid the bodies in the trunk of the car. In September of that year, Anthony committed a crime in, quote, the rich part of the city, just two blocks away from the police station. Early in the morning, he confronted the passengers of a parked van, 21-year-old Todd Sabo and 20-year-old Leslie Sawicki. He then tried to rape Leslie, but she escaped and ran to call the police. She then called her father Peter, a well-known businessman in Toledo, for help. Peter Sawicki arrived before police and he was fatally shot by Anthony. Cook's fingerprints were found at the crime scene. Street informants told about him and soon after authorities found and arrested Anthony on October 14, 1981. No evidence was found that could incriminate Anthony Cook in other murders and so in 1982 he was found guilty of killing Peter Sawicki and sentenced to life in prison. After his brother's conviction, Nathaniel decided to cease his criminal lifestyle, and in the following years was arrested only for minor offenses. In the mid-90s, during one of these arrests, a blood sample was taken from him. Since both brothers left biological traces while committing the crimes in 1998, DNA testing of the samples was carried out, which showed correspondence between the killer's profiles and that of the brothers. On February 13, 1998, Nathaniel was arrested and charged with the murder of Thomas Gordon and the attempted murder of his girlfriend. In 2000, the brothers accepted a plea bargain pleading guilty to the murder of Gordon and describing in detail. The other murders in exchange that they wouldn't be charged with them. Ultimately, Nathaniel pled guilty to killing Thomas Gordon and to being complicit in the murders of Don Bax and Connie Thompson. Anthony pled guilty to eight murders, in addition to confessing to the murder of 22 year old Vicki Lynn Small, committed on December 20th, 1973, which was never connected to the Toledo. Series. As was the deal, Anthony received a second life imprisonment term in April of 2000, while his brother Nathaniel received a sentence of 75 years in prison, with the possibility of parole after 20 years. Retired Toledo Police Department detective Tom Ross said that he believed the murders were racially motivated, adding that several of the victims were stalked. All of the victims were white, and the Cook brothers are black. After spending 34 years behind bars, Anthony Cook filed a motion for parole in 2015, but he was denied and forbidden to file another one until 2025. Nathaniel, having served 20 years, also filed a parole application in 2018. Despite protests from the victim's relatives, The court, given the terms of agreement and the deal with the judge, made in 2000, found no legal basis to prevent his release and granted the request. Nathaniel Cook was released on October 10, 2018, but his freedom is extremely limited. He's obliged to participate in rehabilitation programs for sex offenders, to wear a GPS bracelet, and is forbidden to approach places crowded by children. In 2019, information surfaced that he was living 200 meters from a school in Toledo, but after an investigation by police, it was found that Cook had violated the rules and regulations and was let off. I know that the police did clear the Cook brothers, but I do still think, given their crimes, that it is possible that they did kill young Judith. It's also possible that Judith was killed by someone else entirely. We can only hope that someone in the Toledo Police Department, still working on the case, can find her real killer and he can finally be brought to justice. My thoughts go out to the family and friends of Judith. I truly hope that one day you get the answers that you seek. Now I've got one more story for you guys today, and we're going to my favorite website, yourghoststories.com. As always, I will be reading from the author's perspective. I've always been very attuned to the spiritual realm. and my earliest memories from childhood, include sensing spirits in various homes that I have visited. I have not experienced anything recently until a recent visit to my friend's apartment. She lives in an apartment on the second floor of an old, rundown apartment building in a small suburban town outside of Boston. I have visited the apartment one time before, three years ago, but I was going through a period of emotional turmoil and I was not focused on my surroundings. The apartment belongs to an elderly woman in her 80s that my friend is taking care of. My friend is living there as a roommate, but she also assists with caring for her. I do not have the ability to visit the apartment unless the elderly elderly woman is in the hospital or visiting family, and while she allows me to visit when she is not there, she has severe social anxiety and does not do well with outsiders. Due to her health issues and and incontinence, the house has an unpleasant odor. The apartment is square-shaped and dimly lit. The second that you walk through the door, there is a dining room table immediately towards your left, a narrow, square-shaped kitchen in front of you, and a large living room to the left. Off the living room is a dark, narrow hallway with a bathroom on the right, which is directly behind the kitchen and two bedrooms one to the left and one directly in front the moment that i walked into the kitchen i was immediately hit by a feeling that the atmosphere in the apartment was heavy and oppressive like something bearing down on your shoulders and neck it was not just because of the smell even when the windows are open and even though the walls are painted white the apartment has a dark impressive air to it that is absolutely suffocating. It is that feeling where your hairs on the back of your neck stand up, and you feel like there is a dark energy. I immediately felt that the apartment was haunted. Looking straight into the kitchen as I walk in, I stared at the wall at the back end of the kitchen, which was a dark, dimly lit corner. The overhead kitchen light is not working, so the whole kitchen feels very dark. I felt a mass of heavy energy emanating from that part of the kitchen, and even though I could not see anything standing in front of me, I knew that there was something there. I shivered with a feeling of inherent disgust, and I walked away from the kitchen into the living room. I placed my items in the room on the pull-out bed, and I was drawn toward the back hallway. My friend showed me around again in case I had forgotten the layout and I walked into the room at the end of the hall. It was a room with a dark green carpeting, blue painted walls, and a bunk bed which belonged to her daughters. The moment that I walked into this room, the energy changed to a very sad, wistful energy. There was an air of sadness that I could not explain. The room was full of stuffed animals and snow globes, but I got the distinct impression that something was in the right hand corner of the room beside the bed along the wall that is connected to the other side of the bathroom glaring at me. I felt that I was being told to leave, like the spirit did not want me there and was uncomfortable with my presence. As I was leaving the room, an image popped into my head that I have absolutely no idea where it came from. It was an image of a little girl around eight years old wearing a blue dress, dressed like how a little girl going to church on Sunday would look. Her hair was blonde and clipped on both sides, halfway down in pigtails, sort of like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. She had a sad look in her eyes, and then suddenly I got an image of the same girl drowned in the bathtub. The thought made me shudder in fear, because I have no idea where it came from or why I even thought it. I suddenly asked my friend if a little girl had drowned in the bathtub in this apartment, maybe 60 years ago, and I described to her what I had seen. To my great surprise, she has actually seen the image of a spirit belonging to a girl with that exact description at night, peeking her head out from around the bathroom door and walking up and down the hall, disappearing into thin air if you see her for too long. My friend stated that she had an image similarly pop into her head that the little girl who lived there in the late 70s had died by drowning, but she thought that it was in the river that runs behind the apartment complex. In my mind, I saw her die in a bathtub. I tried to forget about this since I was staying over, and my friend and I went to dinner and into a healing circle since she does energy work. During the session, I closed my eyes and I said a prayer for the little girl, hoping that she will find peace and be able to transition to the afterlife. That night, I slept well, but occasionally woke up in the middle of the night and I felt a presence right next to me. I could not see anything and it was pitch black, but I knew that it was there. I kept feeling like my eyes were being drawn to the bathroom and that there was someone staring at me from around the corner of the door. It was extremely unsettling. Every time this would happen, I covered my head with the blanket and I said a prayer, and eventually I fell asleep. I feel as if she is trapped here, and may have been abused, murdered, or committed suicide. Occasionally, since I woke up today, I have felt as if I saw something flit by me in the corners of the room, but when I look up I do not see anything. I have also seen the window blinds move about even to where there is no wind, and items of mine seem to have been moved or misplaced overnight, only to turn up where I expected them to be after several minutes. My friend states that the room where her elderly roommate stays has a dark, demonic energy in it and that this may be because this woman is a very unkind person who hates children and has attracted negative energy which is slowly enveloping the rest of the apartment. She wonders that if the spirit of the little girl is trapped here and is here to protect everyone from the negative energy in the other room. My friend has done energy work to cast out the negative energy but it returns because it is attached to her roommate and not to the apartment, whereas the little girl is attached to the apartment. My friend also one time was meditating in the living room when she heard the voice of an adult woman whom she did not recognize say, Get out of here now! And it was trying to get her attention, not to demand her to leave, but begging her to leave encouraging her to leave. She heard it as if it was a voice in the room, but was coming from up above, which did not make logical sense when she heard the voice. She instinctively looked up. I could not live here, because even though there is less negative energy today, I do not feel alone in any room, and I feel as if I am persistently being watched. The bathroom seems to be the center of all the energy, and I do not like going in there for any longer than I need to. I have taken photos of the apartment, and will attach them in the comments if anyone wishes to see. I wonder if anyone can sense any any energy from the photos, or indicate what they feel is happening here. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories. And if you could, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. If you do enjoy the podcast, please consider helping to support the show by subscribing on Patreon with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. There are currently eight bonus episodes up for you to enjoy. Once again, thank you all for listening, and make sure to keep those doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.